Today's guest is John Jackson, who's a partner at Jackson Walker, successful litigator. But I think more interesting than that even is that he's a level four wine expert who is very popular on social media under the name Attorney Som. And that's S-O-M-M as in short for sommelier. He's got over a million views on his YouTube channel. And we talk about how and why he started that channel in the first place, how he manages to continue to build that brand while also maintaining a successful litigation practice. We talk about his background. He represented some interesting people in his career, including Tony Hawk. He represented Adam Carolla when he switched over and began, started podcasting. That was an interesting story. Another interesting thing, he talks about his days as a competitive eater, which is pretty funny and interesting. And, and that was something I think you'll, you'll enjoy listening to. We've seen a big rise today in social media influencers. And, and John, when he started this, he really didn't have any sort of mindset to do that at the beginning. He just started it as a, as a creative outlet. And it's been a, a kind of a fun side project, project for him. And, and now it's given him access to some of the, the most amazing uh, wineries all over the world. And he talks about what that's been like. If you're interested in building a brand for yourself, being a content creator, I think this is a must-listen episode. Without further ado, this is John Jackson. All right. Welcome to another episode of the Attorney Lounge. Uh, today, I've got John Jackson, who's a partner at Jackson Walker. But, John, I have a question for you. Do you think people know you better as John Jackson from Jackson Walker or your online name, Attorney Som? Definitely Attorney Sam is far more popular and well-known these days. So. It definitely is. You, you've got quite the following online. So, okay. So for p most people that know you as Attorney Sam, I'm going to go a little bit. I'm, we're going to get into that. I want to definitely talk about Attorney Sam, but I want to start with your day job and how I know you first, which is as John Jackson, who's a partner at Jackson Walker, chair of the Cybersecurity Litigation Group. John handles a variety of matters for clients, a lot in the patent litigation and complex commercial litigation space. He served as a trial attorney in more than 135 patent infringement lawsuits nationally. And at least one of those cases was one we worked on together when I was a general counsel at a company called IGO back in the early 2000s. So I have fond memories of that case, John. I don't know how you feel about, about that one these days. I do as well. And in fact, probably the first five or six big patent cases that I worked on were your for, were for your company, both after you arrived and even before you were there. So definitely yeah. I've spent a lot of time working with that company. Yeah, we had a lot of fun. We were both young attorneys getting started back then. And, and we did have some fun. I, I will tell, I'll start off with a little story that you know well. We got stuck in the Eastern District of Texas. I'm down there. We ended up picking up one of our products at the Radio Shack in Texarkana, Texas. And that's how we ended up with jurisdiction in the Eastern District of Texas. And we went down there. The thing is ready to go to trial. And we're there a week beforehand. And I am stuck in that courtroom in Texarkana, Texas, for a week trying to work through the settlement with you, eating nothing but barbecue every day and drinking coffee nonstop. And after that was over, I ended up back in Phoenix with a kidney stone in the hospital. So I paid the price for that for that lawsuit in more ways than one. So I don't know what you, if you remember that case uh, the way I do. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, all those cases I remember quite well. So 
They have a life of their own and, and lots of interesting characters involved, both as third parties and also on the other side as well. Yeah, we, we definitely had some some characters in that case that we revisited a couple of years later, which was another story maybe for another day. But uh, yeah, quite quite the quite the memory of that one. So, OK, so sort of the theme of the show and what we're talking about a lot are attorneys with interesting careers, things outside of what they do just in the practice of law. But I do want to start with your career and how you got to the law and came to it in the first place. So tell, tell us how you became interested in law, where kind of where you grew up and from the beginning, kind of how you ended up navigating into law school eventually. Okay. So I grew up in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and my dad was an attorney. And so that was something that I, I was familiar with, but uh, I was actually going to business school and thought I wanted to get an MBA perhaps and and do something business related. But then I ended up taking the the GMAT and didn't do quite as well on that as I had hoped. A lot of the the math was a little bit beyond. It wasn't my strength. Let's put it that Interesting. way. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. And so then I took that. that that's, the, that's the test you take to get into get your MBA, I assume. Is that? I don't, exactly. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And also a lot of those programs wanted work experience. They didn't want you to go straight through from undergrad to, to business school. And I had no interest in working at a just a regular job for a couple of years and then waiting to go to school. I wanted to go straight through. So I also took the LSAT and I did much better on that, probably because it had a lot of the same sections, but not the math. <laughs> a lot but, of it's logic more than than math, right? Yeah. So exactly. So that went much better for me. So I thought, well, maybe this is a sign that I should go to law school instead. So I applied to law schools and got into a, a few law schools, but ended up going to University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. And that's how I like the uh, the the sports teams there. Is so. boo. Well, we had, hey, I have no coach though. So I yes, you did. Bill Self has been he's done quite well at KU. So yeah, I can't complain too much. Yeah. So yeah, and that's kind of how it started. So I ended up at University of Illinois for a few years, and then uh, applied for judicial clerkships after law school. Uh, again, kind of wanting to test the waters before I committed to anything, and so I uh, did a judicial clerkship, and there. It's not like when you get jobs with the private sector where you can collect offers and shop them around and negotiate and so forth. With with judges, I think it's it's considered unseemly to to try to do that and negotiate that way. So you're supposed to accept the first job that you're offered and mm -hmm. withdraw everywhere else once you accept a clerkship. Mm -hmm. As luck would have it, the first clerkship to which I was accepted was was Dallas. So I came down here and, and worked for a year. And that's how things started. Did you, so that was just by chance. Well, I mean, had you had any familiarity with Dallas at all? Was that a place you wanted to end up or was it just because you got that first clerkship there? It was more because I got the first clerkship, but I, I was interested in relocating. I didn't like cold weather. I was kind of sick of the Midwest. And so I was applying to uh, judges in cities where the weather was warm or I thought it'd be fun to live through a year. And just to try something different. So I was applying in cities like Dallas and Phoenix and Charlotte and even even Las Vegas. I did an interview in Las Vegas, too. So, nice. That would have been a good spot. Yeah. Just down the road from us here in Phoenix. So you're there. Okay. So the federal district court in Dallas, the, those are, are usually a two-year clerkship. Is that is that right? Mine or was, was it just a year? Mine was one. 
Okay. They can be either one year, two years, or, or even indefinite. And mine happened to be a one-year position. So I did the one-year clerkship. And then uh, about halfway through, I realized that I enjoyed it and wanted to stay there, at least consider my options there. And so I started applying to some of the, the local law firms and ended up getting a job with a litigation boutique that had maybe 12 or 15 attorneys. And they had a high percentage of those attorneys that were former judicial clerks. So it was a pretty cerebral place, and they were really emphasizing good writing skills and federal litigation and, and those sorts of things. And so I ended up starting out there. And then what happened was two years into that, that firm ended up merging with Jackson Walker. And so oh, actually uh, acquired by merger. <laughs> wow. Okay. So I never see, I, I guess I thought you started at Jackson Walker. I didn't realize that you ended up there that way. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, so how did that? How long were you with the smaller firm before you merged? It was a little over two years, two and a half years, maybe. Was that a little bit of a culture shock going from a smaller firm, like a boutique setting to a big firm like Jackson Walker? Quite a bit, but it was actually more fun because at the time, the litigation boutique had 12 partners and four associates, including myself. And the other three associates were all older and with families. So I didn't really have anyone who was my age to to do things with. Whereas at the law firm, Jackson Walker now has way more than 400 attorneys. And at the time, it was probably 300. But mm -hmm. they had probably, you know, 15 or 20 other attorneys that were about my same level within a year or two. And so there are lots of friends and, and things that I could do things with that that I probably wouldn't have met otherwise. Yeah. And when, so the theme of this show is about the attorney lounge, which, I took advantage of at Snell and Wilmer as a way to get to know people. I mean, kind of like what you're saying. I mean, working at a bigger firm, you really do benefit from coming in with a group of people your age. But there was also benefits to learning from a lot of more experienced attorneys. And we would use the attorney lounge to sort of just talk about not just substantive matters of law, but but life and how you, you know, how you go about getting things done in, in, in your life in general. Did you guys have a similar thing at Jackson Walker by chance? I would say we, we got into that more lately. Back then, it was probably more informal. I think that was being done, but more in, in small groups informally. And they also had a, a mentorship program. And the first mentor that I was assigned after that merger was Bob Latham, who you also know well. I know Bob well, yeah. He was, he was working on our cases as well. So yeah, great guy. Exactly. And so then we would have lunch periodically and grab drinks and so forth. And so I would learn through that program. And then you also just kind of as a matter of course and kind of gravitating towards certain like-minded people. And that way you kind of learn from them as well. Is that is that how you ended up in in patent litigation? Typically, patent attorneys will have a background in science or, right? Uh, so... I mean, did you have that background? I know you didn't have a math background now, but did you have a science background? Was that How did you end up sort of getting into patent litigation? Sure. Yeah, actually, I did not. So what happened was Bob Latham and Rob uh, Robert Klinger, Bob Klinger. <laughs> Another good buddy of mine. Yeah, of course. Exactly. Yeah. So, so Bob Klinger handled a lot of the technical aspects and he had an engineering background and he pat prosecuted a number of the patents for your company. Mm -hmm. So what happened was when they had litigation, we we formed teams. There's so much work to be done on a patent litigation case that you can't just have one or two people do it typically, especially in those competitor cases. 
And so we would divide things up. I was the associate and ended up doing a lot of damages related work in other just traditional litigation associate tasks that were no different than another civil litigation matter. But uh, especially since I had a business background, damages worked really well with my background. And so I tended to work a lot on the, the damages issues in, in the patent cases over the years and, and still do. What are some interesting cases you've worked on? I mean, obviously we were your favorite. We did some cool stuff. What are some, any, any interesting clients, any interesting cases you can talk about? Sure. A couple others, I think. No, I'm not a big uh, skateboarder or X Games type guy, but at one point I was doing work for Kohl's and they got sued for a line of products involving Tony Hawk, where there was an alleged trademark violation. And so I ended up representing both Tony Hawk and Kohl's in that case, and then kind of figured oh, out who it was. And it's always a little bit more interesting when the uh, subject matter on which you're working is something that's generally known and, and publicly available and, and that people would know about. So so they were, so Coles and Tony Hawk were aligned. They were uh, both your client in that Correct. Case. So did yep. you get to hang out with Tony Hawk? I did not. That one actually went away fairly quickly. So I never, I never met Tony in that. You never went skateboarding with Tony? No, <laughs> <laughs> ah, yeah, I could have used some pointers for sure. But. And then the other one that comes to mind is Adam Carolla. So, oh, yeah. At the time, I think he used to be on The Man Show a long time ago. And then yeah, uh -huh. uh, he had one of the early podcasts. What happened was he was on a, a show, I think, for CBS and then ended up getting fired on a Friday. And then by the following Monday, he started a podcast online. Really? Uh, just kind of over the weekend. And then the podcast did reasonably well. And he was ultimately sued for patent infringement or his his podcasting company was. And so I represented his company in, in that patent litigation case. And that was really interesting because you're probably familiar with IP Law 360. Yep. Mm -hmm. So for those who don't know, it's sort of like a national inquirer, but for patent litigation, where there's all this litigation and attorney type gossip. And they send an email around every day with links to the articles and these attention grabbing headlines. And so... Back then, every time he had a podcast, he would like to rant and rave about the Eastern District of Texas and patent litigation and, and all these things. And so it, the first thing I would do when I would wake up in the morning is quickly check IP Law 360 to, to see if there's anything that I had to deal with related hmm. to his comments. And it caused some problems, but it was, it was fun as well. So, so did, you, did you get to know him well in that case or no? He, he had sort of a handler. Okay. Kind of like, like an Ari type person. Uh -huh. I would deal with, with Ari pretty much every day. Wow. I defended the deposition and, and he even went to the mediation and had complete yeah. authority. So I exchanged some email correspondence, but the less time he spent on the litigation, the happier he was. And uh, other than just ranting and raving on his podcast, he didn't really have too much to do with it. So. Yeah, I, I think uh, most clients... The less they have to deal with litigation, the better. Yeah. Is it that's interesting too, though? Like managing through a case like that, where you have such a well-known figure and the, the things that they're saying every day are hitting the headlines, and I'm sure keeping you on your toes as you're sort of navigating. Like, were there moments where you're like, "I wish he wouldn't have said that"? Oh, absolutely. There were there were problems because as there's a lot that's exchanged in patent litigation matters that's subject to a protective order and that you can't talk about publicly. 
And then we even had a situation where we were in a mediation and we would have been in an advantageous position because the other side did something inappropriate there. So we filed a motion, but then the response that they filed was just, well, yeah, but look what he's saying on his podcast. <laughs> and then it was kind of detente and the court just lectured both of us and told us both to to stop it. So. Clean, clean up your act. Yeah, that's funny. Well, I hope I wasn't that bad. I, I, w- I think I was probably pretty, pretty easy to deal with. Yeah, definitely. No, I, don't, I don't recall any problems at all. So, Except the kidney stone, that part of it. Yeah. So here, okay, so I'm going to transition a little out of the legal career, but I'm going to relate it to our trip to Texarkana. I have a very vivid memory of we're, we're in the car, we're headed to Texarkana because I think I flew into Dallas and then we had, I don't know how, a couple hour drive or something. Um, and on the way down there, I think it was either you or Bob Latham <laughs> mentions that you're a competitive eater. I, I I remember that discussion, but I don't remember a lot of the details. Remind me what that was all about. Sure. So actually, kind of growing up, I was trying to gain weight for sports. And so I went from being 6'2", 160 as a sophomore to 6'2", 210 by the time I was a senior. And that was pretty much just by force feeding myself every two hours, whether I was hungry or not. (laughs) So because of that, I ended up being able to eat regardless of whether I was full and I could just keep going. And so... I ended up starting starting out just kind of hustling coworkers. How guys are, they'll be out and they'll just make bets about whether or not they could do certain things and challenge each other. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up starting starting to get some decent side money that way, just from uh, <laughs> Jackson Walker colleagues. Wow! But that happened was about that time the the hot dog eating contest at Coney Island that happens on July four became very famous and and well known and was on TV. And then a couple months later, I saw that they were doing another contest that was from that same organization, but at the Texas State Fair, which is in Dallas. Mm-hmm. So I signed up for that and went down there and entered and ended up finished fourth in the in the World Corn Dog Eating Contest. I think I was going to say, were you eating hot dogs or what were you eating there? Yeah, that was corn dogs that time. So that was how many did how many did you get down? How many did you get? I forget. I know I finished fourth. I think it was maybe five or six in 10 minutes. But that one was kind of brutal because they're kind of a greasy mess. And I never really had one before. But oh, No way. You had never eaten one before that competition? No, I, I hadn't. So so I took a huge bite to start with. And then it took me a minute just to swallow that bite just because it was so dry. And oh, God. So, yeah, that was kind of brutal. But But then after that, I did, let's see, it was a tamale eating contest. And so that one was maybe a couple months later and I had 24 tamales in 10 minutes and I finished third in that one. So the only two people who beat me were people that they flew in to the really? local yeah, just to make sure that they had someone that was uh, pretty substantial winning it. So was this also at the, also at the state fair? It was a, a fair that was held in Louisville at Lake Louisville. Wow. And so, I mean, is is there a crowd out there? You got people, like, how many people are watching this thing? Oh, sure. Probably at least dozens, but probably hundreds. At the Texas State Fair, it was pretty big. Wow. And what was your strategy? Like some people like will separate the hot dog from the bun or like, did you have a tamale strategy? Well, the thing about tamales is that they had enough natural moisture that you didn't have to do any of that, which is, I think, why I did better at that one, mm. because you could just kind of chew it a little bit and swallow it. You didn't have to 
add the water or, or chase it or any of those things. Okay. So, and then anything beyond tamales, did you, I mean, what was the pinnacle? What, what was the peak of your eating competition? Well, tamales was my best finish at one of those official sanctioned events, but I also did, I think it was Crystal Burgers at the next Texas State Fair. And I did reasonably well there too. I think I finished third in that, but that was maybe 20 and eight minutes, something like that. That one was a little shorter. That's, that's amazing. Okay. So do you still do this today or is that part of your career over? That's I pretty much retired from that. About the okay. same time I got into wine, but there's only so many high, high calorie bad habits you can have at one time, especially as you get older. So it became too much to do after you get to be 40 years old or so to, to have all those extra calories. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I think what you're doing now is a lot more sustainable for the rest of your career. So I think you made a very wise decision to switch yeah. into what you're doing now. So I guess then was it a seamless transition from competitive eating into into wine or like how how did the whole wine thing start? Sure, that actually started at, at Jackson Walker as well at work. I have a partner named Chip Babcock who does a lot of work for people like Oprah Winfrey and Dr. Phil. And his expense account was much bigger than mine was. And so I was working on a case for him when I was an associate. And we had a, a client come in for a, a business dinner. And Chip had just returned from Napa and ordered a really nice bottle of wine for dinner. And I had never had anything at all like that. It was more just like the red and white wine you get at usual work events or $10 bottles, things like that. And I was probably usually drinking beer or a cocktail, something like that. So... Mm -hmm. But this just totally blew me away. And especially with the the food that we had, it was just an amazing pairing with the steak. And I'd never really had anything like that. So just kind of opened my eyes to what was possible. And within six months after that, I was in Napa myself for the very first time. Yeah. Do you remember what kind of wine that was that you had? Yeah, it was an Opus One. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I've nice. never had an Opus One, but that's kind of the... Well, I mean, for for me, in terms of like kind of a novice in terms of wines, that's one that you hear about is a really special bottle. So, yeah, even to this day, it's one of the top considered one of the top wines in, in Napa Valley for sure. Is that and that's a cab, right? Or is that something it's different? A blend, but it's Cabernet Sauvignon dominant. OK, there's a few oh, other yeah. grapes in there as well, but it's mostly Cabernet Sauvignon. OK, so that kind of kicks off your interest in wine. And then you, so then from that point, did you start to just kind of dabble in it and start ordering, like when you'd have a meal, you'd order wine instead of something else? Sure. Probably there was a two or three year period where I would do uh, trips to Napa and order my favorites from the wineries that I enjoyed visiting and, and drink more wine with dinner, things of that nature. But then what happened was around 2011 or so, I joined uh, a wine club that's in Dallas here. And it's sort of like a country club for wine drinkers. And so you can, you can go there and become a member. You have a locker. Everyone has their wine there. Mm -hmm. And typically you would just show up and then everyone would open a bottle of wine and then you would typically share. So you could go there one night, have one bottle that you pay for and open, but try seven, eight or nine things or more. And mm -hmm. we also have winemakers come in and wineries come in and present their wines and do various wine dinners and things. And especially some of the seasoned and experienced wine collectors there would uh, let me try some of their really old wines or valuable wines. And, and that's really when I, I got into the collecting aspect. Okay. 
Yeah, that kind of reminds me. I, I actually just saw a, a Netflix episode. You might remember the name of it, but it, it, it there was a group of people similar, I think, maybe called 12 Angry Men that, that were doing this in Napa. Is this ring a bell? And then the person that was doing the selling the fake bottles of wine at Sotheby's and places like that. Right. Yeah. Rudy Kurniawan was involved in that, but yeah. Yeah, I think Warren, yeah, they're a pretty famous group in, in New York, I think, but it was, yeah, we didn't really have any of the fake bottles, but other than that, I mean, we're doing a lot of the, <laughs> a lot of the same things where we'd have nice wines and share them and business dinners and, and other winemakers come in and so forth. Like even top champagne producers, they would do a Dove Perignon dinner every year, a Krug champagne dinner every year. Some of the high-end Napa producers would come there and and it was pretty much like what you'd get at the winery or at a, a nice dinner at a restaurant, except they were going to the club to do it rather mm-hmm. than us going anywhere else. Yeah, I kind of remember the the premise of that show they would talk about that they were it was like 12 Angry Men because like one person would bring this fantastic collection of wine and then other people would just sort of bring like whatever they found around in the house and <laughs> they get upset. Uh, it doesn't sound like you had the same problem at this one that, that people were bringing good stuff and you were probably starting to expand your your repertoire in terms of what you liked and your palate and things like that. I'm saying well, there's always going to be a little bit of that. I, I would say there's always a little bit of that where people don't quite reciprocate as much as some of the people would like, but some of that is some people are just starting out and people are at different levels. So yeah, you know, there's always going to be a little bit of that. Real quick, I want to recognize our sponsor, Array. Array handles all the details of litigation so that you can focus on winning your case. They take care of forensic collection, e-discovery, managed review, record retrieval, court reporting, legal staffing and recruiting, trial support, you name it. I'm the general counsel at Array, so I may be a little bit biased but I was also a client before I started working there too. I've used them on various matters and they've always delivered. If you're involved in a lawsuit, make Array your first call and they'll help you get organized right from the beginning. You can reach out to me or visit trustarray.com. Now back to the pod. So you're getting interested. You're you're obviously taking an interest in, in, in wine, but then you decide to take that next step and get take wine certification courses so when does that all start to develop and why why did you kind of go down that path sure so at the wine club a lot of what we'll do is we'll try to blind taste a wine so someone will just give you a glass of wine and ask you to try to tell them what it is and you're just supposed to be able to to try to guess what it is based on your your sense of taste and smell and observing the color and so forth and that's very very difficult and it was Something that, you know, I've always been competitive, as you can tell, by the competitive eating and all these other things I've done over the years. So I wanted to get better at that. And also, I had an intellectual curiosity to know why I liked certain wines and why I didn't like others. Mm. And so I wanted to learn more about it. So I started taking classes to try to do that. So I signed up with the, it's called Wine Spirit and Education Trust, WSET, which is actually based in London, but they have... Uh, classes offered pretty much worldwide, especially at the lower levels. And so I signed up for, for level one and, and that went well. And then every year I did another level. I did level two and then level three. And then my level three instructor was hoping to get permission to do level four. And I wanted to do the class locally because I really liked being able to go there in person and, and doing the tasting on in, in person where she could kind of talk you through it and everything. So I was waiting for her to get approval to teach level four. 
which is a two-year program and a massive step up from level three. And then she just never got that approval. And I don't know if she has it yet. So at the time I signed up for the level four diploma, there was no one even authorized to teach it in Texas. So I had to sign up online and then fly to either Boston or San Francisco to take my exams. Mm. I had a tasting group here that I would work with locally to try to do the tasting. So it wasn't ideal, but it was better than never doing it. So you, what level are you at today? And are, are you considered a sommelier or no? Or is that a different terminology? Like explain that to me. Sure. So I have the level four certification, which is called a diploma from the WSET. Mm-hmm. And the only thing higher is a master of wine. And there's only about 300 in the world of them. So wow. it's, it's pretty high. And even when I was doing level three in my class, there was really no one there who was just an enthusiast. It was all people who are working in the business in one way or the other. So it's level four is way above anything that most enthusiasts would do. But the term sommelier is oftentimes used for someone who's in a restaurant and who's doing more of the service. Mm. So I don't I don't typically do as much of, of that other than just for myself and my friends and so forth. But okay, but the name was kind of catchy. And there's some people who kind of quibble about it, but I have a level four diploma. So they know that I know what I'm talking about and don't mm-hmm. be too much of a hard time about it. <laughs> any, so how many do you have any idea like how many level four? Are level four W set? I don't know how you say that word, but how many level fours are there in the world? Do you have any idea? Yes, I think there's around 12,000 worldwide now. So all over the world. A lot of them are in the UK and Europe, but yeah, there's about 12,000. Okay. How many many attorneys at that level? I don't know, but I I know there's some, but not very many. But the thing about attorneys is we're good test takers. So if we get into something, it's uh, yep. Usually a little bit easier for us to pass tests than for some other people. And so are are you are you going to try to get to that next level too? Is that something you're thinking about or working towards? Well, Master of Wine, they have a, a work experience requirement. So sort of like the, I guess, getting into the MBA program where they want you to do a certain amount of work in the industry. And at least so far, they even though it seems like most of the people, once they become Masters of Wine, want to do what I'm doing and just do social media. Now they really like you using social media work as your work experience to get to become eligible to take that exam or that course. So Hmm. currently we're kind of at an impasse in terms of my work experience. Interesting. Well, which kind of leads further though. Yeah. And when then I guess that leads kind of this naturally into this next question of this online presence that you now have. Correct me if I'm wrong on the numbers. You got about 32,000 followers on Instagram. You've got over a million views on YouTube under the the name Attorney Salam. It just keeps growing all the time. And what was sort of the thought behind that? When did you decide to adopt that online presence and kind of walk me through that and where that began? Sure. And it's funny because I was never even on Facebook. The only social media I had at all was LinkedIn. And I didn't really do much on there. And I was that guy who would always complain that he didn't know about parties or other events because I didn't get an invitation. And then they would say, well, it was on Facebook. So (laughs) but I didn't even know about it until after it happened because I were out of the loop. Yeah, exactly. And so and in fact, I just had my anniversary come up and I think it was 
November of 19 that I signed up for Facebook. So certainly very, very late. And that was maybe a year after I signed up for Instagram. So I didn't even have an Instagram account until late in 2018. And then what happened was I was just kind of looking for a creative outlet. I was traveling a lot for these patent litigation cases and oftentimes just going to dinner by myself or with one or two people. And especially if I was done with work for that day and, and just flying back the next day, I was kind of looking for something to do. So I would take pictures of the food and the wine. And, and then I started posting that on Instagram. At first, I didn't really know what I was doing. And I just had it was just under my own name or something, John Jackson. I didn't have the attorney some handle yet at that point. But what happened was between that and then the wines I was drinking at the wine club, and then I guess my writing is, is always reasonably good anyway, my account kind of picked up way faster than I thought it would. And within a year, I had 10,000 followers on Instagram. Also, it did extremely well, and it was kind of a surprise to me, but... Back then, it was kind of in the point where they were transitioning to one, to wanting more long-form captions. And so it would become more like an article and less like just some sentence or two or just a picture with no, no text or caption. And so at the time, that did reasonably well. And then the bottles that I was posting were, were very, very good bottles. So I think that combination did reasonably well. And, and yeah, it was almost 10,000 within a little more than a year. Wow. And that was just, I mean, no real thought into it other than just, like you said, just a creative outlet and something you would post. And this is, had you transitioned to this Attorney Som brand yet, or was it still this all just under your your individual name? I would say maybe six to nine months in, when it was around three or 4,000 that I, I came up with that name and thought it would be clever and mm-hmm. and thing to do. And so I just went ahead and, and changed it. To, to that, maybe six to nine months in. Okay. And I mean, it does distinguish you, the, the attorney, Sam. I, I, I think it sets you apart a little bit, but it, it's interesting now because I think like so many people, like social media influencers w- are something I think people just generally are becoming more and more familiar with. Was that kind of a thing at that time? I mean, were you even aware that you were building a brand online? Sort of. <clears throat> I think initially... I was hoping to get better visits when I went to the wineries <laughs> and maybe get the a waiver of the tasting fee, things like that. But so that's kind of how it started out. But I, I really wasn't aware of it. And even to this day, I think a lot of my, my partners at work kind of think it's weird, but uh, I, I would have thought it was weird before I started doing it. So yeah. I was never even on Facebook. So I, I was probably the biggest opponent and detractor of social media. That, yep. that existed. So I understand that. So I, I think they probably, at least at work, think it's a little weird. I would say, yeah, maybe some of the old, I bet some of the younger attorneys are probably a, a lot more familiar with it, probably think it's pretty cool. For sure. Yeah. The, the younger, the younger attorneys for sure definitely like it. Mm-hmm. So I've got a little bit more, uh, a little bit more credibility with the uh, associates now. Yeah. You got some street cred with them. And so, I mean, do you find, has it helped? Is there overlap between your legal career and this online presence? Does it help from a business development standpoint at all? Or is it just two complete separate worlds? I've definitely gotten some matters out of it. So there was someone who did a wine documentary and we helped them with their, their contract work and some of their licensing. And I've done a bunch of, we've done a bunch of trademark matters for 
for different people mm-hmm. in the wine industry. So I've gotten some. It's not hugely material, but there's definitely some business that's come in that way. And what I'm I'm curious too about the amount of time that goes into this and how you do it. I mean, are you still you have such a presence now. Are you doing this all yourself or do you have people helping you with all this? So far, it's still just me, but I think the longer you do it, you get more efficient. The one thing I'd really like is someone to edit my YouTube videos because that, I don't think there's anything redeeming about doing that and it takes a lot of time. So mm-hmm. that, I think I'd definitely like to to offload if I could, but on Instagram, what I started doing is is typing out my captions on Microsoft Notes. And so I started doing that a few years ago. And so now I have that library and it's all searchable. So whenever I'm going to write about something, I'll have a lot of what I need kind of in the can and then I'll cobble it together. So say, for example, I'd, I'm drinking a, a 2008 Dom Perignon. Well, maybe last year I had the the 2005 Dom Perignon or 2004 Dom Perignon. So mm-hmm. I'd have all the background information about the winery and in some of the basics. And then all I'd have to do is copy and paste that, maybe tweak it a little bit, but then also just add a, a tasting note that corresponded to the new wine rather than the wine before. So you just sort of, it just sort of builds on itself as you just develop this catalog, I guess. Of- it, it does. It's just like, when you're working as a, an M&A attorney or, or a corporate attorney, you have all these forms on your system and you never start with a blank piece of paper. You start with something you did that's most similar and then you tailor it. Mm-hmm. And that's how I do it now. And that's that's worked really well because I rarely have to just start from scratch at, at this point. That's That's awesome. And then for YouTube, are you creating separate content for Instagram versus YouTube? YouTube is more long, long format, I I think, right? It is. <clears throat> there is a little bit of overlap in terms of uh, YouTube shorts, which are one minute or less, and then Instagram reels. So sometimes you can repurpose content and do the same thing for YouTube shorts that you would do for Instagram reels. But the long form is typically different. So yeah, that, that typically takes more time than Instagram now because I'll oftentimes have to come up with a a script for a long form video and I do one a week at least. Mm-hmm. So then I'll do the script, then I'll record it, then I'll edit it. And then you have to do all the optimization and loading it and uh, a thumbnail, all those sorts of things, and then get it ready for the next week. So, okay. So now you get all this content out there, you start to develop a following. Are you then, did, did you accomplish your objective? Are people starting to seek you out now and want you to come to their winery and visit and taste the wine? Sure. I would say going back to when I had maybe three or 4,000 followers on Instagram, I started getting opportunities for, for paid posts. Mm -hmm. So that's been going on for a while. And then the, I would say the, the offers or collaborations that I get presented with now are, are a little bit different and they're typically more about payment plus samples rather than just samples. I actually say no to a lot of them. I haven't really monetized YouTube so much other than I do get ad revenue there. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to keep that mostly commercial free because I'm still trying to grow that subscriber base. And I always think it's a little bit annoying if the videos are sponsored and you have a lot of interruptions in the video. So yeah. I haven't too much with that yet on, on YouTube. Yeah. But 
I do, I do more of that on Instagram, but it's still not as much as most people do. Some people that are doing obviously promotional content several times a week, mm-hmm. but since I have other sources of income, I don't need to, to do a paid collaboration just to pay the light bill or something. Uh, yeah. Which kind of probably adds to some of the credibility and the reason that you've developed uh, a following like you have. So, okay. So that being the case and you're going to all these wineries, give me some examples. What What are some of your favorites? Where, where are some cool places that you've been? Sure. Well, just last week, for example, or, or two weeks ago, I was in uh, Piemonte in Piedmont, Italy. And so I went to uh, a winery called uh, Bruno Giacosa, which is one of the top Barolo and Barbaresco producers and has been for a number of years. And then there was another one that was kind of a, a boutique, but also still recognized as one of the top producers in that area. That's called Roberto Vorzio. And so that one is not even open to the public. And if you go to the website, it says, we don't do visits. There's no sign. There's, there's nothing. So there's a mm-hmm. lot of opportunities like that where I get to do visits where they wouldn't even talk to me otherwise. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. And then when I do go there too, it's not like a typical tourist visit where I'd get just a couple of new releases and pay tasting fee, those sorts of things. Typically it would be a meeting with either a, a winemaker or a, an owner maybe, or, or someone that's pretty knowledgeable and not typically just doing tastings all day. So, yep. and then we're typically doing a large number of wines, including some library wines and in higher end wines and not just their, the entry level wines. So, okay. So I'm going to pepper you now with just some, some wine questions. And this is from, from a novice. So this is from somebody who doesn't know anything about wine. So, all right. What's your favorite wine? What, what, and I know you probably get that question all the time, but like what, what, if you could, if money was no object, what would you buy? Well, my favorite wine of all time. I mean, this is the same answer for all variations of the question, either the most expensive, my favorite, the one I'd, I'd want to drink all the time. And it's the same wine. It's the 1990 Domaine de la Romani Conti, Romani Conti bottling. Hmm. So that's a, a high end Burgundy, which is Pinot Noir from probably the best, I would say probably the top producer and what's widely considered to be the top producer at all of Burgundy from a, a so great age. What would a bottle of that go for? It would be probably uh, a Toyota Camry, brand new. <laughs> uh, probably now it's closer to 30,000. I think at the time it was being auctioned for about 25. Oh, geez. Probably gone up since then. Do you have bottles of that unopened in your collection or no? I don't, but what happened was we had this opportunity through the place where I'm a, a wine club member where the proprietor there wanted to do a tasting of this producer. And so he had an opportunity to buy this bottle and then three other bottles that were less expensive, but still really good from that same producer. Mm-hmm. And so he ended up getting eight of us to chip in. And then we paid for those bottles at his cost. And then we just tasted them one night. So we had about eight of us. And we each kicked in our pro rata share of, of what it costs for him to get those at his cost. That's awesome. That's awesome. Okay. So now going the other direction, what would you say? We got the holidays coming up. And so people are looking to buy like what, what's a, what would you recommend for like a good bottle of wine under 50 bucks? Sure. It depends a little bit on what people are looking for, but I know if they like sparkling wine, they could get, and they like champagne, for example, they could get something like Piper Hideseek, 
is a pretty good brand or Lanson. They have some everyday champagne that's around $50. But there's also something called Cremant, C-R-E-M-A-N-T. And so what that is, is sparkling wine that's made from other parts of France besides the Champagne region, but which is made in the same way. And so oftentimes you can get some very good Cremant for around $20 a bottle, $25 a bottle, and it's going to be much better than something like a, a Prosecco or something like that. So if you're looking okay. at sparkling wine, I think Cremant can be a pretty good choice. And uh, if you go to the store and you tell them that's what you're looking for, then probably they can tell you which one would be a good one to get in terms of what they have at, at, available at that time. So a lot of times for me, I'll, I'll go like, I'll just go with a cab because I tend to just, it's easy. I'm used to drinking cabs. Like mm-hmm. what, what are good wines that people don't normally think of that you would recommend? Chardonnay, cab, Merlot, you, t- you tend to hear of those. Is there some other type of wine that you think people that doesn't get enough pub that should be more at the, at the top of the list when people are, are buying? I think so. I think a lot of people who start out enjoying Cabernet Sauvignon, like I did, actually end up really enjoying wines from the Rhone Valley. And so there you're talking about things like Syrah, Grenache, Wervet, and then blends of those. So I think a lot of the so-called GSM or Grenache Syrah Wervet blends can be really nice. They would also probably go well with a lot of foods that you'll have at Thanksgiving. And so there you have a couple different options. There's some from Paso Robles, for example, they have a lot of those if you're looking for California, but otherwise you can get something called Chateauneuf du Pape, which is Southern Rhone. But the one that I think is the best value right now would be Gigondas. It's G-I-G-O-N-D-A-S. They have a lot of the exact same blends that you might find in Chateauneuf du Pape, but for less money. And sometimes they do uh, even better in the the scores. So I think that's probably one of the top areas for value right now. Well, I think that after you just sort of ran through that list, I'm thinking that maybe the reason why is because like, I, I can't see myself saying the, the Chateau, I can't even say the word, like a cab is easy to say. So it could, <laughs> trying to think of those, I'll have yeah, to write those down. Just, yeah. Just tell them GSM and they'll know what that means. Okay. Let me get, let me get a let me get you a little bit off the wall topic here, because this is uh, for me growing up in Kansas. We drank a lot of this. My parents still do. What's your opinion on boxed wine? I probably haven't had one since I was in high school, to be honest. <laughs> Back then, one of my friends, we would visit his, his mom's condo or whatever, because they would have a, a weekly happy hour and we would just show up there when I didn't yet have a a driver's license that said I was 21 and <laughs> we're there and, and drink out of that box. But yeah, you think you could, you could force yourself to do it these days or, or no? Maybe, maybe as part of a blind tasting for fun or something, but I haven't even had a canned wine yet. Oh yeah. I don't think I've ever had a canned wine either. So that's interesting. Well, let me, okay. So I brought a bottle. I found this this summer and <laughs> I'm going to try to put you on the spot and, and see if you know what this is, but it's called a, a Marenko Panetto Bruschetto Diachi. I don't know. Does that, can you see that? Does that look familiar at all? I think that's an Italian sweet wine. It is. Yes. Yeah. From the, the Piedmont region. Okay. Mm. Ever had that one? 
I've, I've tried it once or twice. Yeah. That was actually the region I was visiting a week or two ago. So wow. it's from one of those areas. So, but it is, yeah. I mean, it is a pretty obscure wine. So it's not something I have very often, but I'm, I was at least familiar with what it was. I, I tried it this summer. I liked it. It was really, I think actually my wife was the one that got it and it was kind of sweeter. Mm-hmm. Almost had a little bit of a fizz to it, but. Yeah, it was something different. So I think like for me, I'm trying to expand a little bit and not just go for the cabs all the time. So yeah, yeah I would uh, try Saran or uh, Grenache Saran or Red Blends. Those would be good choices, I think. Okay. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to write that down. I'm going to remember <laughs> which ones <laughs> it's coming up with the name when I feel like I'm on the spot. So, okay. And speaking of being on the spot, here's a question that. I think a lot of novice people, they bring the wine to your table. You try it. I don't ever want to send it back. Have you ever sent one back? And I don't even know that I would know that it's a bad wine. That can be tricky, but yes, I've definitely sent wine back. (laughs) And typically it's when it's been corked or sometimes it could have heat damage. But I've done some videos on that to try to teach people what to look for when they're assessing it. But that's even tricky among people at the wine club who have been drinking for three years where they don't even necessarily recognize when a bottle they've opened has cork taint, for example. Some people are much more able to identify cork taint than others, but other people really have a hard time with it. And before I identified it, I think I probably dragged through a bunch of them without even realizing it. But the best way to learn how to smell it is for someone to give you a bottle that has that problem so you can smell it. And then once you smell it, you know what to look for going forward and it gets a lot easier. Mm-hmm. But even then we have people who they'll have these big, huge three liter bottles that they spent a ton of money on. And I don't think they can bring themselves to admit that it's that it's a bad bottle. So. I just generally have a problem doing that. And I'm afraid like if I send back food, like they're going to spit in it or something like they're going to, it's like, I don't know. It just seems rude to do it. But then I don't, I'm not confident enough, I guess, in sort of my ability to identify some, a bad bottle of wine, I guess. But like you said, maybe the more experience you get. And it's not always black and white either, which makes it tricky. So you could have a, a bad case of cork tape, and then you could have one that where the wine is maybe just a little bit muted and it's not as expressive as it should be. And that's when you can sometimes get into problems with the restaurant about whether or not they, they will accept it or not. So. Mm-hmm. I tend to be pretty sensitive to it, especially now. I can identify it pretty easily. And so typically, even at the wine club, they'll usually start taking a straw poll rather than just admitting it's cork. They'll go to four or five people and say, what do you think? What do you think? And usually I'm one of the people they'll ask because I'm one of the people who's better able to identify it at this point. Okay, well, I think we're kind of coming up on the end here. So I, I would say the, one last question I have for you is sort of what what would what recommendations would you have for attorneys trying to develop an online presence? Is that so you've kind of sort of backed into that almost by without trying to? Is that something you would recommend? And if so, kind of what would you recommend people do to to sort of build that online presence the way you have? Sure. I think it it really depends on your goals and objectives. So I think if someone is an attorney and they just want to further their legal career, that I think platforms like LinkedIn are very good to use. And you could you could use other platforms, probably not TikTok unless you're a comedian of some sort, but maybe something like like Instagram, but then 
you could talk about your trips or if you if you had a trial, you could post something maybe showing you go to the courtroom or things of that nature to kind of reinforce what you have on the other platforms. But if you're trying to do something more on the side, then you'd probably look to different platforms because I hardly ever use LinkedIn now because it doesn't really help me so much for wine. Mm -hmm. But things like Instagram and and even X or Twitter are are reasonably good for wine and uh, certainly YouTube as well. So I I think it comes down to mostly identifying your goals and what you want to do, then choosing the right platform for it and then being consistent because I think a lot of people, they give up too easily or they're inconsistent. So for me, I post pretty much every other day, come hell or high water, I'll, I'll post something. I don't go two or three days without posting anything. Mm-hmm. So you have to be consistent, even when you're not getting any traction, you don't feel like it. And it seems like a waste of time. You have to fight through that and keep going for a year or two. And yeah. only then do you start to see traction because even though it seems like it started really fast, probably the first three or four months, I wasn't getting any traction and it took me maybe two months to even get to a hundred. Mm-hmm. It goes really, really slowly. And that was posting 15, 16 times a month. So yes. I think it's no surprise people want instant results and they don't want to have to put a lot of time and effort into something when, especially attorneys, when they don't see the immediate return. But yeah, I think you just have to play the long game and just, put the time in and, and put the effort in. And eventually, if you're smart about it, it, it could definitely pay off. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's it's maybe helpful from a business development standpoint, from a presence standpoint, but I also think like just kind of the way you started just as a creative outlet for, for anybody in any profession, giving you something kind of creative that you can do, whether you're building a, a presence or not, something that kind of helps you keep your sanity and so I love what you've done. Congratulations on everything you've built, both in your career and in the attorney SOM world. I think it's really neat. And I think you're helping people get uh, familiar with wine and taking on a subject that's intimidating to a lot of people and, and making it more relatable in a fun way. So I, I really like what you've done and I commend you for everything that that, that you're doing today and, and and for where you're going in the future, John. Thanks very much. No, and thanks very much for the opportunity. It was fun to talk to you again. Yep, yep. So, all right, that was John Jackson, otherwise known as Attorney Sam. Thank you, everyone, for joining us again today. And please remember to subscribe to the Attorney Lounge podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. I want to thank Array again for sponsoring the podcast today and making this all possible. For more information about them, please visit trustarray.com. Thanks again for joining us. John, Attorney Sam, thank you. My pleasure. Thanks very much.